Good morning. I'm Lauren Anders Brown, an independent documentary filmmaker. Being behind the camera in over 40 countries has resulted in hours, days, terabytes of footage. So much of what happens to make a shoot possible ends up on the metaphorical cutting room floor. Most of my editing used to take place in planes, trains, or whatever available coffee shop had a decent filter single-origin coffee, and always using the hashtag todaysoffice. Now, I'm picking up the scraps, reviewing old interviews, and scrolling through my social media to give you a behind-the-scenes look at what it is like to travel, produce, film, direct, record, alone, as my own correspondent. Today, we're going to relive one of my first shoots as a documentary filmmaker from 2013, technically ringing into 2014, in Israel and Palestine. I arrived in Bangarian Airport on a Saturday. It was eerie and empty. Apparently, only Americans like myself planned to arrive in that part of the world on a Saturday. It was my first time of what would be many trips to the Middle East, and while I was there to film and explore how football, or soccer, was used for social change in the area, I also wanted to kind of see deserts and camels. I started off my Saturday on the ground with tea in a tent with some Bedouin people before mounting my camel, because Bedouin people still work on Saturdays. The most memorable thing I can say from that experience is it is very difficult to ride a camel and film and photograph at the same time. Before I left, I stopped by a ruin I found along the way, and I looked at the sand and thought I was seeing things. There were actual shells in the sand. Was I at a beach or a desert? That was the first dual identity question I would face here. I went from landing by plane to riding a camel and back in a car to make it to Jerusalem by nightfall. I woke up the next morning to set off and do what I could on my own. I had tried in short notice to reach out to a couple of tour companies, but had not heard back in time. I spent Sunday mostly around the old market, where suddenly a parade of men wearing tall hats came walking towards me and my camera. I froze like a deer in headlights, not knowing who these men were and why they were intently charging towards me. I then awkwardly realized they were not charging at me, but at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was right behind me, and thankfully managed to get out of the way before I became a casualty of the Holy Spirit. I made my way through the smells and spices of the old market, was captivated by a shop full of old brass pieces coffee pots, liquid eyeliner brushes and holders, even magic lamps. D did I mention they had coffee pots? The owner instinctively offered me a coffee. I mean, clearly this guy knows me, or I just happened to be in the right part of the world, and chatted about life as an Arab in Jerusalem. I felt we bonded over the coffee. I mean, how could you not? So I naively asked a hard question, if he thought peace was a possibility. He kindly replied, he did not think it was possible. And it was that kindness that he used to reply that stuck with me. He wasn't angry, 
just realistic and kind. And yes, I bought the coffee pot from him. I maximized my unofficial filming time by once again waking up early, although this time with coffee and shushuka. I asked the hotel to have a taxi take me to Shuafat refugee camp. It's the only Palestinian refugee camp located inside Jerusalem or any other Israeli-dominated area, and the first refugee camp I would ever experience. I passed some simple checkpoints. No one cared to look at my identification or who I was. Almost as if no one cared who went into this area. Now, looking back on it, it was one of the more well-established refugee camps I've ever seen. There were multi-story buildings, shops, and, of course, the thing that caught my eye the most, a brand new turf football pitch. I wasn't planning on getting out of the taxi, but as someone who loves the game, I couldn't help myself. There were a group of boys playing on the pitch, who I kicked the ball around with for a bit, and then wanted their photo taken afterwards, which I was able to understand, despite not speaking any Arabic. That is one of the reasons football is a beautiful game. You don't need to speak the language to play and enjoy it. As I was leaving Shurafat, I asked the driver to stop to get a shot outside of a pet shop that had a cage of white birds outside. I'd like to think they were doves, but they were more likely white pigeons. As I let the camera roll, a little further down the road, a boy started walking towards me. I began instinctively to shift my focus to him. He was holding a white bird in his hand, and he brought it straight to my lens. I was speechless. It was a perfect shot, and all I had to do was be present, turn on the camera, and focus the lens. Upon arriving back at my hotel, where I had to speed pack my things to head out the door and meet the fixer to begin the official filming schedule, I received an email that I couldn't resist. One of the tour companies got back to me saying, I should really meet one of their main guides, even though I no longer needed a tour. His name was Aziz, and he happened to be in Jerusalem that day as well. There are no coincidences, especially in a place considered the Holy Land. A few emails fired off, and I was having lunch with Aziz and absolutely realized he was an incredible person with such perspective. I just had to put him in front of my camera. Okay. Um... I never had to introduce my project on camera. I normally do a million other things that I have to introduce. Um, okay, so you want me to introduce myself again, you said? Yeah, I, I'm just not sure if we got it at the beginning, just so we have so it. So my name is Aziz, I'm a Palestinian. <coughs> I live in East Jerusalem, okay. My name is... Oh. <coughs> my name is Aziz, I'm a Palestinian, and uh, I grew up here in East Jerusalem. And uh, I started uh, a couple of years ago working on a project uh, called Conflict Zone, which is filming uh, conflict areas from multiple narratives and perspectives and letting everybody tell their own story about how they see that conflict and eventually finding ways for the two sides to come together. I grew up here in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem. Um, let me think about that for a second. How short and how long do you want it to be? Sure, it's better. Like 30 seconds, 60 seconds? Okay. Okay. Uh, I grew up in East Jerusalem. Uh, I grew up to a big Palestinian family. My earliest memory of the conflict is uh, watching uh, TV and seeing people throwing stones. 
and going myself out and throwing stones the next day because I thought this is what you're supposed to do. Except instead of throwing stones at Israelis, I ended up throwing stones at Palestinians uh, because I didn't know the difference at that time. I actually stoned my neighbors. Um, so yeah, I grew up with that. Um, my effect of the conflict, how I was affected mostly by it, is it through my brother who was killed when I was uh, 10 years old by Israeli soldiers. And so I grew up for a long time anti-Israel until I had some transformation of becoming a peace activist. My transformation happened through going to study Hebrew. After high school, I needed to learn Hebrew to live in Jerusalem. Without it, you can't really function. And I refused to study it growing up. And when I went to study Hebrew, everybody in my class was a Jewish immigrant to Israel. And that was the first time I met Jews who weren't soldiers or settlers, where you could meet them as a human beings. And that's where my transformation happened. I think it's a process when you become a peace activist, a peace person. It doesn't happen at one moment. So there have been different people through this process that have helped me. The first one was my teacher in the Hebrew class who was amazing and was very patient, dealt with my anger and me not wanting to talk to anybody in the class for a while, thinking I can actually learn a language without, uh, without talking to anyone, which didn't work well. Um, but also people from the other side who were willing to listen to me and willing to listen to my pain and my story and not judge it. So one of them, for example, is a very good friend of mine now named Ramil Hanan, whose daughter was killed by Palestinian suicide bomber. And we both bonded over our experiences. And I learned a lot from him on how to deal with anger and with pain and not wanting to, to revenge. Look, the problem with the words forgiveness, reconciliation, peace is everybody takes it and interprets it as they think it, what it means. If you really explain it to a lot of people, more people would agree with it. So deciding not to take your anger and your pain to a point of revenge is, a, is what a lot of people would actually agree with. I worked with hundreds of families, both Israelis and Palestinians, who lost family members in the conflict, and they decided to do exactly that. So it's about explaining what does it mean. Now, do I believe peace is possible? Absolutely I do. I think nowhere in the world when you went to people when the conflict's going on and asked them, do you think it's possible, that they thought yes. Most of the times they would say, no, it's impossible. Whether it's Ireland, whether it's Mozambique, whether it's South Africa, a lot of people thought it's not gonna get solved. It takes working hard at it and it takes people who stop being indifferent and doing something to make a difference. And a few people doing that, I think it is possible. Aziz has shared his story and understanding in so many ways. It's part of his mission and it really connected with me and also prepared me for the day ahead. I met our fixer, kept to myself of all of the unofficial filming I had done, and began the first part of the official schedule, a trip to Bethlehem in the West Bank. Ominous and overbearing. I stared up and out the window as we drove past the wall to the other side into the West Bank and onto Bethlehem. It was an overcast day, which did no favors to the tired-looking buildings that were a stark contrast to the Jerusalem we had just come from. We came to a tired-looking but well-loved building that was home to the Hope Flower School, a school that focuses on children ages 5 to 14 who have been traumatized by conflict, exposed to malnutrition, and lack perspective. We were welcomed inside 
by Ibrahim Issa, who spoke candidly with us. You know, I have born in a refugee camp. My family is, has been displaced in 1948 from a village, uh, Ramla, near Tel Aviv. And they lived uh, for 35 years after, uh, afterwards in the Hesha refugee camp. So I was born there and raised up in the refugee camp. So I remember also the, uh, uh, how soldiers, for example, used to come at night and to search our homes, how they taken my father also the, at some nights uh, uh, when they were gathering all youth from the refugee camps. I remember soldiers coming angry and the, the destroying things in the home. So I, you know, living in the refugee camp, yes, I remember all, all details. And for uh, me and my family, it is, uh, uh, Hope Flowers School is just the dream about how this area should look like. Uh, people did not understand his uh, model, which is based on nonviolence, and what it means also to resist the occupation in a nonviolent way. My father came from the nonviolent resistance. In the 70s, he established with Palestinians uh, this group of model of resisting the Israeli occupation in a nonviolent way. That's, that's his very basic uh, uh, involvement here also. But he, what he was proposing also a different way out for uh, for our conflict. Uh, you know the the mood of Palestinians uh, for many years. Uh, I think up till the 90s, Palestinians did not recognize Israel, and the mood was to fight and to resist uh, the Israelis, and to come in the 70s and 80s. Uh, uh, and to say we want uh, coexistence. People saw him as collaborator. Uh, there have been attacks to our home, there have been uh, uh, people declaring my father as collaborator and attacking him personally and uh, campaigns to exclude him from the society. I think it took a while before the society understands the difference between nonviolence and collaborator or being passive for the occupation or having passive resistance. It wasn't easy for me. I was living in these circumstances, in this uh, culture where uh, patriotism is you have to fight. A peacemaker is not patriotic. That was very difficult uh, to imagine that someone who calls for peace and coexistence to be patriotic. And it took me several years actually to understand that. I wasn't, although my father was uh, one of uh, the leaders in nonviolence, and he was very known. Uh, I call him social activist. I don't like the word peacemaker, <laughs> but uh, actually he was. Uh, uh, but it took me a while actually to understand that it needs a lot of personal development, a lot of courage, and understanding and openness. Uh, it's much easier for people to turn to violence. Uh, than to uh, uh, than to choose nonviolence as a strategy to deal with various issues in, the, in their lives. I think there is a lot of openness now about nonviolence. It's not to be uh, compared totally to the 80s uh, and certainly the 90s and the begin 2000. You know, I think there is a growing awareness about that. I mean, no one is seeing me as collaborator now being very much involved with this. 
Uh, it's different. I think my father certainly saw the seeds of this, but he's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm working totally in different circumstances than him. You know, having my children growing up in this atmosphere where Palestinian and Israelis uh, together, for, for me it is very important that they grow up to see human beings. It is, uh, it is very important for me that they realize that life is not about black and white, that this is Israelis are bad and Palestinians are good. You know, we are, we human beings are, you know, we have different colors and we, some of us, some of us are very good, some of us are less good, some of, some are uh, bad, but it's, uh, for me, it's very important that they see things as it is, as they are. You know, I think, I totally believe one day we look back and we will say we had a conflict. I, uh, one, of the th one of the things I like very much being and living in Holland, in the, in the Netherlands, is uh, that you, nowadays you can travel in Europe very easily and you don't see borders and people live and coexist together in a very nice way. And if you look 60, 70 years ago, you know, this continent was totally divided and a lot of wars and hatred between the people. And I have no doubt that one day we'll, Palestine and Israel will reach that phase. I don't know still how many people have to die and I don't know how, many, how much bloodshed should, be, should flow before we have that. But I have no doubt that we'll reach that because people are also getting more aware that there is no uh, alternative. The only possible way here is to live and coexist, coexist together. After the interview, I remember feeling quite emotional and empowered. Ibrahim gave me a gift, a ceramic plate with the Hope Flowers logo painted on it. If I thought I was emotional before, that definitely brought a tear to my eye. And I had nothing to give him in return not even a stash of coffee that I normally carry with me, or anything. But that didn't bother him. We went to lunch together on a place on a hill that overlooked Bethlehem. The food was amazing, plentiful, and the company matched it. Around the table, we had Palestinians, Israelis, and Americans. The sun was setting, and we knew we'd have to get going. But part of me wanted to stay longer, and I almost think part of me was left there. That was my first and last time filming in Palestine. And despite the intense security at the airport upon departure, I managed to protect my plate and bring it all the way back to New York with me. The Hope Flower School is still running to this day, although with COVID-19, they have suspended classes for now. But if you're interested in learning more about their work, please visit hopeflowers.org. My interview with Aziz was not a one-off encounter. We kept in touch and have met up for barbecues at my home in New York, over lunches at the Frontline Club in London, and even meeting up at the TED Fellows Conference in Edinburgh, where he gave me a signed copy of his book. Please check out and support his latest book on Amazon called Crossing Boundaries. It's a travel book, not really about travel, but rather about finding peace. 
something we can all do a little more of these days. And that's it for today. Back next week.